two weeks, we've been in a series on spiritual warfare. And I thought the thing that I, the thing I thought was so helpful was Pastor T came up with this grid coming off of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 on basically defining on what spiritual warfare is. And I'm going to paraphrase him just a bit here. And so if I blow it, he can correct me next week. Um, But the grid is this, that spiritual warfare is a battle against three enemies. And our three enemies are the world, the devil, and ourselves, our own sin nature. And since that's true, the most common spiritual battle that we participate in is the struggle against the efforts of our spiritual opponents to push us into sin. I'll say that one more time. The most common spiritual battle that we participate in is the struggle against the efforts of our spiritual opponents to push us into sin. So in short, these opponents try to make us sin, and we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, try to resist. So here we are, these tiny human beings struggling against the whole world and its sinful structures, the literal devil, and our own sinful natures. If you think of it in those terms, it doesn't quite seem fair, but given who Jesus is and the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, it's no battle at all. We've already won. But what do we do in the meantime? The question is, how can we join God in his battle against sin in our lives in the here and now? Before I get to that practical exhortation, I want to take a minute to talk a bit about sin itself. If this is what our spiritual enemies are driving us towards, it's important to think through what sin is. It's a word we don't hear much in popular culture anymore. We're much more likely to hear of mistakes, of poor judgment, lapses of control, et cetera, et cetera. The word sin feels weightier, it feels heavy, it feels like something from a medieval era. And it should. Sin is rebellion against the righteous order of God. And there's a variety of ways for that sin to express itself. First and most obviously, sin can simply be a failure to meet God's standard by doing evil. We can also sin by failing to do what God commands by refusing to do something good. And lastly, we may do the right thing, but for the wrong reason which is also sin. Look how tricky that is. Sin can get us coming and going. Our spiritual enemies can talk us into doing something that is evil, theft, violent behavior, self-abuse through drugs and alcohol, sex outside of marriage, things of these sorts are all sinful activity. But sin is also refusing to do that which is good, loving our neighbors, sharing the gospel, making disciples, being generous, and so forth and so on. And finally, there's doing things for the wrong reason. And this gets me all the time. It's my inner Pharisee who tells me that I should do this right thing in order to gain favor with man or make myself righteous or some other lie instead of my heart seeking to glorify God. And so this is what our spiritual opponents are pushing us towards. And spiritual warfare then is all about fleeing from sin with God's help. And so today, we're going to focus on that from the text, James 5, 7 through 16, and what it has to say to us about joining God's war on sin. So I'll read that passage now. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it 
until, he, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the word of the Lord. I want to give a little context to the book of James here. It's incredibly practical. Many scholars have lumped James into the same literary category as Proverbs, which is wisdom literature. It has a lot of exhortation and advice for the Christian on how to live through suffering, pursue righteous action, and encourage the faithful. It is intended... Its intended audience was most likely comprised of Jewish converts to Christianity. It was addressed broadly and not to any specific church context, and so it has a wide audience and doesn't hone in on anything very specific or particular to that time and place. But what matters for us here today is how much the book is focused on helping the Christian live in a fallen world on a day-to-day basis. Now, with that in mind, what does James have to tell us about how to fight spiritual warfare? How do we get some practical tips in this war against the world, sin, and the devil? Because we certainly need them. I'm going to point to three main pieces of advice that I see in verses 7 through 16. And these three start with steadfastness. Ultimately, we are not able to live perfectly. Only Jesus could do that. But we must remain steadfast in faith in the knowledge that the day of the Lord will come and Jesus will stand in victory over sin, the world and the devil, on that day of judgment. The second bit of advice I see here is confession and repentance. Confession and true repentance help heal us from our sin and bring, the, bring our church family into our struggles. The church both points us to Jesus and prays to him for our healing from sin. The third tool that James points us to in our spiritual warfare is prayer. Prayer is mentioned repeatedly at the end of this text. Prayer is how we confess our sins to God. Prayer is how we lift up our brothers and sisters in their times of struggle. And prayer is how we ask God to remind us of his ultimate victory. Prayer, prayer, and more prayer. So that's the broad overview of what we're after today. Confession, steadfastness, and prayer help the Christian in spiritual warfare by healing the effects of sin raising our eyes to Christ and asking God to help us. 
If you only remember one thing, let it be that main idea. Again, I'll say it one more time. Confession, steadfastness, and prayer help the Christian in spiritual warfare by helping heal the effects of sin, raising our eyes to Christ and off of ourselves, and asking God to help us. So let's jump in. Our first point is that Christ's victory makes the faithful steadfast. We see this in verses 7 through 12. Our patience, our ability to endure, should be driven by the knowledge of how this all ends. By the knowledge that the judge is at the door. So let us behave as if we hear the judge's footsteps on the other side of that door. We know what awaits at the end of all things. Christ's victory over sin and death and the rescue of God's people for an eternity in glory with him. This knowledge should instill patience and steadfastness in us. It should get our eyes off of ourselves. Christ's assured victory robs the world and the devil of their power over the Christian. What can they do to us? On one hand, a great many horrible things are possible. The world has a long history of persecuting Christians. Some of those oppressors have called themselves Christians. But this worldly opposition can only take our lives and after which untold glories await. The devil, on the other hand, has has endeavored to deceive and ensnare Christians since the Garden of Eden. But he too will fall under Christ's glorious return. Revelation 20 says it like this. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So what we see here is how it ends for the world and the devil. In the meantime, we as Christians should consider the well-known beginning of this book. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. Let the knowledge of Christ's return and victory allow us to remain faithful in him and consider suffering as an opportunity to gain in steadfastness. For the unbeliever, this should be a sobering call. If one is not in Christ, then he is of the world. He or she is part of the forces arrayed against God's purposes, and that day of judgment is coming. If that's you, do not wait to seek God's grace through faith in Christ. Do that today. If your soul is unsettled by the wickedness and evil you see in the world around you and in your own life, don't ignore it. Pray to God, talk to him, ask him to give you faith and to forgive you. Talk to the friend who brought you here or one of the pastors about what it means to be reconciled to God and to pursue Christ. For the Christian, the outflow here is very practical. James is giving us some really solid advice. He tells us, do not grumble against one another because judgment awaits us all. Who are we to judge the servant of another? We must have patience with one another. Both patience with people and circumstances. So it's one thing to be patient in a trial and recognize this is a difficult season in life. 
I will put my faith and trust in God. It's far more difficult to be patient with people in the midst of those same circumstances. James's point here is that very soon our temporary frustrations will pass away. Doug Moo, a commentator on this book, said this, but grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. And so when we lose control of our tongues here, the people who suffer the most are the people who are closest to us. As the church, this should not be. Likewise, James encourages the Christian to be truthful and clear. Our yeses and nos should be yes and no. Note that both this and grumbling are examples of how the Christian is supposed to keep a tight rein on his tongue, which comprises a large chunk of this book as a whole, particularly in chapter three. Christians should be in control of their tongues by the Spirit's help. So then, knowledge of Christ's victory should give us patient endurance in this life, in spiritual warfare, and in suffering. As as a result, we should endeavor to control our words and be patient with our brothers and sisters. All of this helps eliminate opportunity for our spiritual enemies to entice us to sin. The temptation to slander your brother or sister, the temptation to gossip, the temptation to speak ill instead of well are all common temptations to the body of Christ. Which brings us to our second point, namely that confession and repentance heal sin. James deals with this topic in our text today in verse 16 with the call to confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. I'm using repentance and confession somewhat interchangeably here, but there is some distinction that I'll get to. But I'm going to start with repentance. What is it? What's repentance? Psalm 51 is helpful here. It's perhaps the most famous example of repentance in the Bible. After Nathan confronted King David about his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, David composed this psalm. David's cry is for mercy from our righteous God, and he recognizes that the first place he must start is repentance to God. It is that relationship that comes first. And we see this in verse 4 of chapter 51. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David recognizes he deserves justice from God. So he asks for mercy. He asks for a restored relationship with God. Verse 2 shows us this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So we see that a desire for right relationship with God is the first sign of true repentance. Hear that again. True repentance is first and foremost concerned with a reconciled relationship with God. And that source of reconciliation must be God himself. God, David asks God to wash and cleanse him. This points to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It is by Christ's perfect obedience to the law and then sacrifice in his death that allows this cleansing from sin. By confessing and repenting from our sin and placing faith in Christ, we are washed from our iniquity. We are healed from our sin. The wages of sin is death, 
But in Christ, we have eternal life. And so that illness is healed. But godly repentance also seeks peace horizontally with our fellow man. Think of Zacchaeus, that wee little man. He climbed up a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus came to his house. That day, Zacchaeus came to saving faith in Christ, and his response was to restore that which he took from his fellow man and give away his fortune to the poor. And it's easy to say, oh, well, that's nice. But Zacchaeus was a tax collector, potentially one of the wealthiest people in the area, and the way he got rich was by defrauding his fellow countrymen with the full weight of Roman authority behind him. So the money that he gave away to try and atone for his sin or try to make up, make peace with his fellow man was not insignificant. But neither was his sin that he committed against his people. So what we see here is that true repentance desires reconciliation with God vertically, but also with our fellow man. It tries to make amends. And note how Zacchaeus' specific repentance pulls him away from the very sin that ensnared him and condemned him. He is ridding himself of wealth, the very thing he stole, the very trap the spiritual forces of evil sucked him in with. Repentance means renouncing our old sinful ways of life. Thomas Brooks said it this way, Repentance, says a holy man, strips us naked of all the garments of the old Adam and leaves not so much as a rag behind. In this rotten building, it leaves not a stone upon a stone. As the flood drowned Noah's own friends and servants, so must the flood of repenting tears drown our sweetest and most profitable sins. We must break with our sinful past. I once heard a metaphor for what true repentance looks like, and it's been a helpful word picture for me to wrap my head around what true repentance is. So if the person we're going to sin against is a tree in the forest, and our sin is us taking an axe and swinging it at the tree, damaging the tree, trying to cut it down, repentance is one, stop chopping. Two, try to repair the damage that you've done, patch the hole that you've made in the tree. And three, break your axe. That is, take concrete steps to try and ensure that this sin never happens again. And so, some caveats here. What is repentance, what repentance is not almost matters as much as what repentance is. So it's far too easy to say, I'm sorry, and then expect that that covers repentance and you're done. But the truth is, is that repentance requires an effort to reconcile, to repair the damage that you've done, and also to fight as hard as you possibly can that it never happens again. Far too often, particularly in the church, we tend to see, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up. And that's supposed to be the end of it. But if you're truly repentant, you will strive with every effort to make things right, first before God, but then with your fellow man. So sin is an illness that leads to death. And ultimately, what I think James is calling us to do is to take that illness to Jesus. So what I find so fascinating about verse 16 and the exhortation to confess is that it comes in the larger context of talking about being healed from sickness. And so I'll read 13 through 16 again to reorient, reorient ourselves to that context. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'll be honest, uh, this text is a lot to unpack, and there's quite a bit of debate about exactly what it means. Some commentators think that the prayer of faith mentioned is some type of spiritual gift where the elders are praying in line with God's will, and the healing that results is simply a recognition of God's will and action. Others believe that the sickness referenced here is a spiritual sickness, and, salvation means, and healing means salvation. The Greek word translated as sick can mean either being weary, ill, or worn out, or it could also mean being physically ill. The Greek phrase translated as will raise, will raise him up can be seen as physical healing or to be raised from sleep or awaken. So you can see why there's some de- debate about what actually is being talked about here. But to get lost in translation nuance would miss some of the obvious implications for us today. I think there are some rather clearly spelled out duties here as it relates to seeking God's healing. First, the sick member of the body calls the elders. And then second, the elders pray and anoint. And the text calls us to do those things with faith, with the belief that God can and will heal, whether from illness or from sin. It seems to me that there are two ways to go wrong with this text. The first is a variation of the prosperity gospel. Namely, if we have enough faith, then God will heal us. This is a lie, this is false doctrine, and it should be rebuked. Scripture shows us that this simply isn't true. The Apostle Paul asked three times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh, but that never happened. And clearly, Paul had earth-moving faith. Or let us look to Jesus, who died poor and betrayed and largely abandoned, yet with perfect faith. So we can see that this prosperity gospel, this idea that faith, if you have enough faith, you will automatically be healed is false. But there's a second error, and for me, it's a little sneakier. I think people fall into it thinking that healing never happens, that God is somehow unable to heal, and that our only hope is in the knowledge of human medicine. That is common grace, and praise God for it, But this text stands as a strong rebuke of that unbelief. We can and should ask God to heal us and invite the elders to pray over us when we're physically unwell. And we should do that in faith and in trust of God's promise that he is working out all things for the good of those who love him. So this text has a lot to say about how to respond to physical illness. But I also think there's spiritual implications. So if there's a debate, the classic cop-out is both and, and that's exactly what I'm doing here. Going back to that debate about physical or spiritual healing, I think the text contains both. It seems to me that there is something uniquely powerful in confession that God uses to heal our sin, our spiritual illness. And it's Christ that provides that healing. Matthew 9, 2 through 8 tells a relatively well-known parable, the story of a paralytic who is brought to Jesus by his friends. When Jesus sees their faith, he tells the paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, the religious leaders of the time are offended by this. He's accused of blasphemy. 
And so Christ responds by healing the man to demonstrate that he has authority to forgive sins as well as heal physical illness. I think that's a great image of what the church is supposed to do for one another. We bring each other to Jesus. Physical healing may happen, but Christ will do something far greater for those who place their faith in him, namely, forgive their sins. And the individual who is unwell, weary, and sick is to bring their need to the church. That's what confession to one another does for us. It sheds light on our need for Jesus' grace and allows the church to help point us to Jesus by praying for us. Confession pushes back on spiritual warfare by naming the very things we're struggling with. Keep in mind, the devil, our sin nature, and the world wants you to sin and keep sinning and keep sinning. But it's through confession and repentance that we begin to kill sin by the Holy Spirit's leading by bringing that sin to Christ and engaging and allowing our Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside us and fight with us. Confession has practical benefit as well. I tell this story often if you know me, so I apologize if some of you have heard it, but it's been instructive for me. Uh, Some years ago, I had uh, the privilege of being in tight community and relationship with two other men, and we were all newly married, trying to figure things out, Uh, still don't have it figured out, even though they put me in charge of teaching one of those classes. But it was a very helpful thing for us to create a space where we could confess to one another weekly or every other week. We were transparent, open, and honest. And the unique thing about that particular situation is that all our wives were in a similar type of relationship on their own. So they would pray for each other, confess their sins, encourage each other. And so that's a unique level of transparency where if you know, I hear one thing from the husband and my wife hears another thing from the wife, it tends to be, okay, like, we know what's going on. We know what's going on there. We know what's going on there. So it was, it was a blessing in that it encouraged all of us to fight our sin. But what practically really helped is one of those couples just had a tough marriage from the jump. And I'm sure all of you know or have seen a marriage like this. Just oil and water. They just didn't, couldn't connect, couldn't communicate well. One was a night owl. One was an early riser. Just all sorts of conflict crept in over and over and over. And honestly, if you'd asked me at the time, okay, like, what do you think's gonna happen here? I would have said, they're gonna get divorced. There's just no doubt in my mind. I don't see how they can make it when it's conflict constantly. But God was faithful and gracious to them. And now they've, the Holy Spirit has worked in them and they have a marriage that I envy in many ways. He leads and loves his wife well and she serves and supports and loves her husband equally well. And so I asked him, what, what happened? <laughs> and so what he told me is that space for confession was the thing that continually pulled him towards Christ and helped their marriage survive. Literally, if it wasn't for that ability to be transparent and confess, their marriage wouldn't exist today. So my super practical exhortation to all of you is if you don't have one person, one brother or sister, who you are not completely transparent with and confess your sins with and struggle with, find that person. If you don't know where to start, come to the elders and ask because these are the lifeblood of of doing life together and pursuing Christ together. I have a couple of caveats about confession here. Um, 
And one, given the recent news uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention about the covering up and ignoring of sexual abuse of kids, I do want to note that confession and repentance does not absolve anyone of legal responsibility. So if you are guilty of a sin that should land you in jail, your responsibility is to confess to the law and then to the church. And if somebody confesses something to you that is breaking the law and they should be investigated by the police, we start with the police and then the church. So that is one caveat. Saying, confessing to my brother Peter as much as I love him does not absolve me of legal responsibility. <laughs> that brings us to our last point. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. We can walk the second half of this text and see the exhortation to pray again and again. Are you suffering? Pray. Is someone sick? Let him call the elders to pray. Has someone confessed sin? Pray for them. The story from Matthew of bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus is so instructive. One way we can apply the principle of bringing our friends to Jesus is to pray for them. Additionally, our enemies in spiritual warfare are all far too powerful for us alone. We have zero ability to stop our hearts from sinning. We have no ability to redeem the world so that it loves godly values and encourages holy behavior. We have no ability to fight the devil. He's literally a cosmic being on another plane. The only hope we have is in Christ to fight our battles for us. But praise God, he does that and has already won on the cross. The Lord also calls us to pray for him. I think of Luke 18, one through eight, and I'll read it to you now. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat, down, beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. How much more just and loving is our God than an annoyed judge? Christ calls us to always pray. God welcomes our prayers. He is pleased that we come to him. So let us do that. And this too bears fruit in the real world. There was a woman uh, some years ago, she's a Christian, young married couple, both Christians, and they had two kids. Their, their youngest kid was a boy, and she, this, she, you're not supposed to have favorites, but it was her favorite. Um, and from the day he was born, she prayed for him. And he came to the Lord at a young age, and she was encouraged by that, and she continued to pray for him. However, at age 15, like young boys are so often guilty of doing, he became interested in things of the world, whether that's partying, whether that's chasing women, whatever it was. And she didn't know what to do, so she continued to pray with him. At 20, this boy went to college where the things of the world are all the more ensnaring, and more and more prodigal he became. And again, she didn't know what to do, and so she prayed for him. At 25, he now worked, and so he had a little bit of money, and so pursuing things of the world became even more 
easy and more difficult for him to get away from. And again, the mother saw this, but didn't know what to do, but she did know she had to pray. And so her prayers began to, started to be answered around 27, 28. This boy started to realize that the things of this world were empty and hollow and only Christ would satisfy the deepest desires of his heart. And so that's when he began to love Christ. And at age 30, he was married and faithfully pursuing Jesus. And at age 35, he got the opportunity to talk about confession and prayer at Anacostia River Church. So I think if we look at prayer on a time horizon of six months or a year, we're going to miss it. But the persistent widow kept coming, and so are we. So did my mother. And so when we look back, when we're 80 and we look back at the change that has happened, we can see God answering prayer much more clearly than we can in the moment. And so that's an exhortation for all of us to pray, pray, and keep praying. I came to this text thinking I was going to focus in on confession, that as always God's word gave me more than I was looking for. I was struck by how keeping our eyes on Christ's victorious return enables steadfast endurance and how prayer commits our care into the hands of a loving Savior. But still, I am struck at how confession can help heal us of our sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a quote, said it this way, and it's long, but I think he basically wrote my conclusion for me, so I'm going to read it. He said this, You are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner that you are, to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. The last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders and gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, the acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He is no longer alone with this evil for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. If a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother, he will never be alone again. So confession removes the mask and allows us to live in the light of Jesus Christ with him and with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you stir our hearts to be more open and confess more to one another, that people would be amazed by the grace and transparency that mark this body at Anacostia River Church. I pray that you keep Christ's victory uppermost in our minds and that stirs us to be steadfast in the world while we wait for Christ's return. 
I pray that you make us a people of prayer, that we continually bring all things to you, that we seek your will first before our own, and that we pray for your glory and the expansion of your gospel here in this city. I'm grateful for these men and women. I'm grateful for their passion for you, Lord. I pray that you would continue to grow that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.